The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. Well, I just want to start today by um, taking a moment and just sincerely saying thank you to all of you who over the course of this past week, you've sent me text messages, you've sent me emails, you've sent me voicemails, you've stopped me in the hallway to ask and to say, hey, I'm praying for Joe, I'm praying for the kids at Pepperdine, I'm praying for the people in Southern California. Um, Well, Joe is actually now here with us for Thanksgiving, so that is a great thing, and I am very happy and relieved as a parent, certainly because of that, and I would just ask that you would continue to pray. Um, because as you're, if you're watching the news at all, you know there's all kinds of tragedy that's still happening out there. And so please keep praying for the people who are in harm's way, for the people who are suffering, and for the people who are still facing just a tremendously difficult situation. Please keep them in your prayers. Now today, as we continue in our series called Greater, I want to begin by actually reminding you of something that I've said every single week in this series And the reason why I keep reminding you of this is because this is one of those things that I hope that you never, ever forget, even if you never, ever become a follower of Jesus. And that is the fact um, that, that, that the people who actually bring to us the Gospels, right, the people who bring to us the testimony of Jesus, these were people who were very familiar with adversity. Now, one of the challenges is in our world is that especially the way that Christianity is kind of marketed, the way that Christianity is kind of displayed, especially on social media, it can be so easy to just reduce it all to nothing more than a bunch of, of pie-in-the-sky ideas and wishful thinking and all of that. Right? But what I hope that you never actually forget is that all of the New Testament, all of the things that we know about Jesus come from men and women who experienced absolutely tremendous adversity in the course of their life. In fact, if we were to actually look at their lives compared to our lives, right, in many cases, their entire lifetime was one event after another of just incredible, incredible tragedy, especially compared to what it is that you and I experience in our modern world today. And so today, what I want us to talk about as we begin to get near the end of this series, is a very, very specific idea. It's an idea that Jesus reminds us of and that Jesus tells us about. In fact, the New Testament authors, they remind us of this very specific idea over and over and over again. And it is an idea that is so important for us to remember, especially when we are in a a greater-than moment, a crisis of faith, like we've been talking about in this series. And that specific idea is the idea that God is good. And and the whole reason why, the whole reason why we are told to remember that and to know that and to believe that is because intuitively, whenever we start asking the questions, God, why are you allowing this? And God, am I going to actually make it through it? Right? Intuitively, we don't believe that. Right? Intuitively, we don't believe that God is good. Instead, left to our own, we actually begin to believe the exact opposite. And yet with Jesus and all throughout the New Testament, with the New Testament authors, they are all telling us whenever we face, whenever we face a crisis of faith, a greater than moment, we are to embrace this very, very specific idea that God is actually good. So today's message Today's message is for all of you who are here today who are followers of Jesus, but it's also for you today if you are here and you are not a follower of Jesus, but you are not a follower of Jesus for one very important, one very specific reason, and that reason is actually this word right here, pain. 
So before we go any further, I need to say just a couple of things. This is such a big and complicated subject, right? So this, this is so big. To give you an idea of how big this subject really is, since Jesus and the New Testament authors themselves, right, starting with the New Testament authors themselves, and in every single generation since, countless authors have written literally uncalculable works dealing with the whole issue of pain and suffering and reconciling the issue of faith and suffering in this world. That is how big this subject really is. Okay, so because of that, because of that, if you are here today and you are genuinely struggling with maintaining faith in God because what's happened to you is not just bad, in fact, it's so bad, it's terrible, right? If that's you and you're struggling with that right now, or if you have a friend or you're talking to somebody and they're having a hard time believing that God is good, they're having a hard time believing that there is even a God because of what it is that they are going through personally, either with themselves or their family. If that is you, if you are in either one of those two categories today, I want to strongly encourage you to to pick up two books, to pick up two books that we have in the bookstore. I made sure these are in the bookstore for us this weekend. These two books, A Grace Disguised by Jerry Sitter, okay, and I Am Strong by John Dickerson. Now, these, both of these books are personal stories, right? These are not, these are not big, heady theological works. These are personal stories of the tragedies that these men experienced in their lives. They're not related to each other, not connected to each other in any way. But they're stories about the tragedies they faced. And they are the best books I have ever seen that honestly deal with the question, how am I supposed to maintain faith in God in light of what's happening to me in my life right now. So if that is you, or if that's somebody that you know or care about, I want to strongly recommend those two books that are available in our bookstore this weekend to you. So after saying all that, let me start with this question today. Ready? If you could, would you remove everything that is bad from the world right now? If you could, if you could just push a big magic button, and by pushing this button, you could just magically remove everything that is bad in the world right now, would you push this button? Now, before you answer that question, let me just ask you another question. Have you ever done anything bad? Have your children ever done anything bad? What about 10 years ago? What about when you were in college? What about when you... We're dating, right? If you could, would you push that button and just get rid of everything and everyone that has ever done anything bad in life? See, the only way, the only, this is so important for us to understand, the only way that God can actually remove our chief complaint about him Right, God, how could you allow this to happen? God, why would you create a world where this kind of stuff happens? The only way for God to actually remove our primary and our chief complaint about him, the, the complaint and the argument that we have about him that is the, the most emotionally experienced argument for the existence of God and the question of whether or not God is actually good or bad, the only way for God to remove that or resolve that or reconcile that somehow is to remove everybody who is actually asking the question. And see, if you're here this morning and if you have reason to hesitate before you would push that button, isn't it possible? 
isn't it possible that your heavenly father also has a reason that he would hesitate? See, if you would hesitate to push that button because you would say that reason is me, that reason is my son, that reason is my mom, that reason is my daughter. If you have a reason to hesitate, isn't it possible that perhaps your heavenly father has a reason to hesitate before he would push that button as well? See, one of the things that followers of Jesus that we have always believed is that God actually has a reason to wait, that God has a reason to hesitate. Followers of Jesus have always believed that you and I, that we are actually that reason. The scriptures teach, and the followers of Jesus, we have always believed that God is actually patient with evil. That God is as heartbroken, that he is as sick, that he is as brokenhearted over the presence of evil in this world as every single one of us are. But there is a reason why. He waits to push that button. Just like there would be a reason why you, perhaps, would hesitate. Now, it's actually the Apostle Peter who puts all of this into words for us. In his book, 2 Peter, which is on page 1869 in the Bibles in front of you. Take that out. 896, my apologies. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. It's Peter who, who lived with Jesus, who knew Jesus, who listened to Jesus teach, who spent three years of his life with Jesus. It's Peter who puts these thoughts into, into words when he says this in verse 9. He tells us, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient. In other words, Peter says that very same change that you would like to see happen in this world, right? that very same change that you just urge and cannot wait to see happen, the end of abuse, right? the end of cancer, the end of brain tumors, the end of racism, the end of sexual abuse, the whole reason why movements like Me Too start in the first place. Peter tells us that your Heavenly Father wants to see those very same chap- uh, changes happen in this world as well, that God is as disturbed as you are at the presence of evil in this world. Followers of Jesus have always believed that God knows, that God actually feels, that God has even experienced those very same things that we have. But the reason he doesn't do something about it immediately, the reason God is patient, is because he has a reason. And so Peter says, he is patient. Patient with who? Peter goes on and he tells us, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. Followers of Jesus have always believed that God has a reason to hesitate before just getting rid of everything that is bad, that you are that reason, that I am that reason. See, the problem, however, is that when you and I, when we experience these bad things in life, when we experience these pains, when, we ha- when our families are hurt, when we are hurt, see, what, what you and I want, what we, don't, we don't want patience, Instead, what you and I want is we want to open up a really big can of, you thought I was going to say something else, justice. Right? We want a really big can of justice. And wherever we see injustice, we want to spray injustice and just get rid of them. Wherever we see injustice happen, just spray it. Just get rid of it. 
We'll just spray all those people, get rid of them, right? All those politicians that we hear about that don't pay their taxes, just get rid of them. Maybe all the politicians in general, we just get rid of all of them, right? Wherever we see injustice in the world, we want to take out our big can of justice and just get rid of it. Yeah, justice smells, doesn't it? (laughs) See, but there's something else that we want, too. This is even better. Because we also want a can of this. We want a can of bad remover. Anytime we see something bad, cancer, brain tumors, just get rid of it, right? Just, it's gone. All those people trying to sell drugs to kids on the playground, right? Just bad. Just get rid of them. You're out of here. Right? All the abusers, get rid of them. All, all those people who are engaged in sex trafficking, we just get rid of them. In fact, we double, double spray those people, just get rid of all of them, right? Wherever we see injustice or something bad in the world, we want to take out our cans of justice and bad remover and just get rid of it. This is what we all want. But see, here's the thing, right? Here's the thing. I have to be the one holding the cans, right? I, I, don't, want you to, I don't want you to get a hold of these bad boys, do I? No, why? Why? Because... Because you might decide to spray me, right? Because the truth is, I have been unjust. And the truth is, see, I have been bad. See, what we want is that whenever we see injustice in the world, by however it is that I determine justice, I want to get rid of injustice. By any time we see what's bad in the world, you see what's bad in the world, you want to get rid of whatever that is bad. All that is determined by what it is that you think and what it is that I think is good or bad. See, the truth is that is what every single one of us want, isn't it? But see, wanting that, wanting that actually highlights something that is true of all of us, which is that really what each of us want is that really I actually want to be God. I want to be the one that decides what's just and unjust. And you want to be the one that decides what's good and what's bad. See, that's universal and that's everywhere. And that idea that all of us have actually points to two very important assumptions that you and I actually live with, but we rarely actually think about. The first is this, is that there are certain things that just should not be, right? There are certain things in this world that just should not be. The whole reason why you want a can of justice every once in a while is because there are certain things that just should not be. The whole reason why you want a can of bad remover is because in this world there are certain things that just should not be. See, it was this actual sense of should and should not that led a 31-year-old British atheist by the name of C.S. Lewis to realize and to think about where did this sense of should and should not actually come from. It's what led this 31-year-old British atheist away from his skepticism in the existence of God to actually to theism, not to becoming a Christian, not yet. But it led him to asking this question, where did this sense of should and should not come from? And in his book, Mere Christianity, he details all of this because what he realized is that if this idea, this sense of should and should not, if this is my idea, then I have no right to impose my ideas on everybody else. But if this idea of should and should not, if this exists other places then where did it come from? And what he recognized is that it seems very interesting because it seems like the people around me, they have the same sense of should and should not that I do. In fact, he realized it seems like there's almost a global sense of should and should not. 
Which is tremendously interesting if you think about our world today, because even in a culture today that has largely abandoned the ideas of sexual morality and purity, a culture that has largely abandoned the, the idea of one man, one woman for one lifetime, right? even in our culture today, it is still universally accepted that there must be consent, isn't it? That's still universally true. It's still universally true that murder is evil, isn't it? And so C.S. Lewis thought, okay, where did this idea of should and should not, where did that actually come from? Because if it came from me, I have no business trying to impose that on anybody else. But if it came from somewhere else, where did that actually come from? And so this idea just bothered him. It just bothered him, and he could not stop thinking about it. And, And this is the interesting thing. Think about this. It was actually the injustice in the world. It was actually the sin in the world. It was the evil in the world that caused him to recognize, to lift his eyes towards heaven and say, there is a creator God, a moral judge of the universe. He wasn't ready at this point to say that Jesus is God. He wasn't even ready at this point to say that this was the God of the Bible. But he recognized that this unavoidable, inescapable sense of should and should not that came from somewhere outside of himself he explains it to us this way in his book mere christianity he says this supposing you hear a cry for help from a man in danger you will probably feel two desires one a desire to give help due to your herd instinct the other a desire to keep out of danger due to the instinct of self preservation in other words you hear a cry for help you want to help but you don't want to get into the same trouble that person is in. So he goes on and he says this. But he says, you will find inside of you, in addition to these two impulses, a third thing, which tells you that you should follow the impulse to help and suppress the impulse to run away. See, it was actually this dilemma for C.S. Lewis that finally drove him to realize that as much as the presence of evil in the world may appear to argue against God, perhaps the very fact that I recognize that things are not the way that they should be is actually an argument for the existence of a good God. And see, this whole thing, This whole thing actually points to a second assumption, a second belief that every single one of us actually live with every day, which is that this, that the world is broken, that it's not just the people, right? It's not just humanity, but it's the whole world, earthquakes, floods, wildfires, tornadoes, cancer. It's human behavior, but it's not just human behavior, that the world is broken, See, that's why we would love a can of justice every once in a while, because it's just not right that innocent people suffer. That's why we would love a can of bad remover every once in a while, because it's just not right that people going about their business would be caught up and swept away in a wildfire or a tsunami or a tornado. It's just not right. There is something in us that says... This is not the way it should be. There's something wrong with me, and there is something wrong with this world. It is broken. But see, here's the thing that I hope that you never forget 
if you are a follower of Jesus. And if you're here and you are not a follower of Jesus, here's the question, here's the thing. I hope that you never stop trying to think about or that you wrestle to the ground. The world is broken. The truth is, every single one of us, every day, we are reminded of that fact. In fact, our desire for both of these is actually evidence and proof that the world is broken. But see, followers of Jesus, we have always believed that our current world is not the final world. From the very beginning, the, the scriptures teach, because this is what Jesus would say anytime he would say the kingdom of heaven is like, or the kingdom of God is like. That the scriptures teach from the very beginning that Jesus, the New Testament authors, even pictured for us in the book of Revelation itself, followers of Jesus have always believed that the world did not start off broken. That the world was not broken when God handed it off to humanity, and the world was not broken when God actually gave to us our most coveted attribute, our ability to choose, the freedom to choose. But that the world actually became broken when we decided that we actually knew better than God. See, followers of Jesus have always believed that this version of the world is not the original version, and this version of the world is not the ultimate version. Followers of Jesus have always believed, and again, you may never have heard this before, that this current world is actually the best way possible. That this current world is the best way possible to the best possible world, that this current world with all the problems, all the dysfunction that we see, all the things that we wish we could change is actually the way. It is the best possible way to the best possible world. Because you know what the best possible world is? The best possible world is a world where men and women are actually free to sin but choose not to. The best possible world is a world where we continue to be able to, to freely choose to love, freely choose to serve, freely choose to do all those things that actually make life in this broken world a better place, but who also have the power and the ability to freely say no to temptation, to freely say no to anything that would actually undermine the dignity of another person, to freely say no to anything that would elevate me above somebody else, to freely say no to all of those things that cause so much evil and so much heartbreak in our country, in our community, and in every single one of us. Now, you may be sitting here this morning thinking to yourself, okay, I am a follower of Jesus, and I have never heard that before. I know, I get it. For some reason, right, just like the resurrection, this whole thing has kind of moved off the page in most of our churches in our world today, which is unfortunate. But it's actually the Apostle Paul who explains all of this to us in his book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. Take out your Bibles, turn over to Romans chapter 8, page 1,757, and the Bible's in front of you. We're going to begin reading at verse 18. It's the Apostle Paul who tells us this. He starts this section off by saying, I consider that our present sufferings, and again, remember, the Apostle Paul was a man who was very acquainted with suffering, just like we talked about a couple of weeks ago. 
And so if, you're, if you've kind of always just dismissed, you know, Christianity and you've even maybe dismissed theism, right, because of the whole question, how could a good God allow all these evil, bad things to happen in this world, right, you have to understand that the very people who, who, who have carried the torch in terms of faith in Jesus, every single one of them have suffered, right? Every single one of them have suffered. None of them were strangers to suffering, In fact, at the very center of what it is that we say we believe as followers of Jesus is our Savior who willingly entered into this world and took on extreme suffering. And yet even in the midst of that, still held on to the belief and the faith that his Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Father, is actually good. And so Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be, notice, future tense, revealed in us. It's like, okay, Paul, tell me more. He says this, the the creation, it waits in eager expectation, right? Notice that, future tense. And he says creation, right? Not just humanity, not just mankind, But all of creation knows that this is not how things are supposed to be. This isn't the way things were meant to be. This isn't how things were designed to be. The creation knows this, he says. And it waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. In other words, creation is not wanting to escape the brokenness. No, instead, creation is waiting for everything to be made new. That there really is something different. That there really is something that's going to happen. That this is not our final form. This is not our final resting place. That even you and I, we are not the way. God created us, intended us to be. For the creation, he tells us, was subjected to frustration. That when humanity sinned, everything under mankind's authority suffered those consequences. Now, that's not fair, but it is absolutely true. And the truth is, you know that. Because every single one of you, when you were kids, you suffered at some point because of decisions your parents made. Now, that wasn't fair, but it's absolutely true. Some of, us are, some of you are just like me. And you're actually predisposed to certain illnesses because of who you're related to, right? That's not fair, but it is absolutely true. And in the very same way, the scripture tells us, followers of Jesus, we have always believed that when humanity took possession of the earth and we sinned, when sin entered into this world, it entered into the entire world. And the whole reason why we actually know it's broken is because there is still, there is still an imprint of the image of God left over in all of us. That the image of God rests in some way in every single human heart, whether or not you are a follower of Jesus. That's why we know there's something wrong. That's why we know it should be better. That's why we are never satisfied. That's why we know there should be a way forward. That's how we know intuitively that ultimately for that change to happen, something has to happen at the macro level, not the aerosol level. Something has to actually happen at the macro level if things are going to be different. And see, the Apostle Paul tells us that all of creation is leaning into and waiting 
for that change to occur. Not by its own choice. In other words, we don't get to be the ones to decide when that's finally going to happen, but by the will of the one who subjected it, right? The one who actually gave the earth over to humanity to take care of in the first place in the hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. Now think about this for a second. This is written 2,000 years before all the things that we think are responsible for the problems that we face in this world ever even existed. Think about that for a moment. 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul is writing, telling us, listen, we can see decay everywhere. Our bodies decay, buildings decay, the earth decays, the stone walls we make, they all decay. The Apostle Paul tells us that the entire creation, it is under this curse of decay because that curse is the result of an outside factor, the sin factor, that this decaying version is not the final Version because one day it too will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom from decay, from sin of the children of God. Now, at some point, I get it. Right? I get it. This is not an emotionally satisfying answer to the question and the problem of pain. Is it? I, I understand. I totally understand that. Right? I get it. I would even go so far as to say this. You don't actually want an emotionally satisfying answer to the problem of pain. Because listen, there is nothing that I'm going to say, right, that's going to make you say, oh, Joe, now that you've said that, I'm okay with the fact that there are children suffering in this world. Oh, Joe, now that I've heard that answer, I'm okay with cancer. I'm okay with brain tumors. I'm okay that people just got caught up in wildfires. Now that you've told me the answer, Joe, I'm just okay with human suffering. I'm just okay with the fact that they don't have clean water to drink. I'm just okay that children starve all over this world. I'm okay because now you've given me the answer. There is no emotionally satisfying answer to the problem of pain because God, your heavenly Father, is not satisfied with the problem of pain. Because even if you are not a follower of Jesus, there is still enough of the image of God left in you that you will be dissatisfied. You will always be dissatisfied when you see people suffer. Because that is actually the image of God in you. It is evidence. It is actually evidence that there is a God of the universe. There is a good God in this universe, a heavenly Father who wants to have and who has the capacity to have a personal relationship with you. And listen, I live in the very same world that you do. Every single day, I hear about or I see bad things happening to good people, just like you do. Every single day, I'm reminded that there's pain in this world. There are constant reminders that this version is the decaying version, that this version is not the best version. And followers of Jesus, we have always believed that while we are here in this version, we will continue to push back against evil. We are going to continue to rescue innocent children. We're going to continue to fight against injustice and racism and abuse and poverty. Everywhere we see it, we're going to continue to bring the hope 
the only real hope that comes with Jesus to the least, the lost, and the lonely here in this community and all throughout our world. But as we do that, followers of Jesus, we are the ones who recognize the only real hope, the only lasting hope, is a hope in a renewed world, a new world, because pain and suffering is not evidence for the absence of God. Pain and suffering is evidence of the fact that we know things are not the way they are supposed to be. They should be better. Because if God removed everything that was evil in this world, he would have to begin by removing me. And see, followers of Jesus, we have always believed that God did not enter this evil world through his son to remove me, but instead to forgive me. And his plan, his plan has always been to transform us and to change us into what it is that he meant us to be. That has always been his plan in this world. That is what happens at the cross of Jesus where God's justice and God's love meet and the really bad things are really removed. And the really broken things are really healed. And you and I really are set free. Let me pray for you today. Heavenly Father, every single one of us here this morning is glad that you are not satisfied, that you were not satisfied with things not being right. In this world. In fact, that is the reason, Heavenly Father, that you sent your Son into this world in the first place. Because it isn't right. It wasn't right. And you didn't dodge it. You didn't forget about it. You didn't step aside. You didn't just choose to remove us and go on in some other way. Instead, Jesus, you actually decided to come into this world to walk and experience the pain and the suffering that every single one of us have experienced and to enter into our pain, so that we would not be alone because of it. And so, Jesus, for those of us who are here this morning and are your followers this morning, I pray that we would continue to be just as discontent with pain and suffering in this world as you are, that you would use us to fight injustice, that you would use us to press into those parts of our communities and our world that need to be changed. Jesus, we recognize and know that apart from you, Things will never be right. But because we have been sent by you, we bring your hope. We bring your presence. We bring the offer of your forgiveness into that brokenness. And so, Jesus, I pray that every single one of us here would actually be your instruments to accomplish your will, that your kingdom would grow in this place and in this world. And Jesus, the truth is, we know that sin has not only affected the world, it's affected me. It's affected us. It's broken our relationships. That we are, by nature, a part of the problem. And so, Jesus, we ask that you would please hear us. 
as we personally and silently confess our sin to you. The good news of the gospel is that our hope is not here. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in a day, in an age that is yet to come, where everything will once again be made new. And there, there will be no more death, no more crying, no more disease, and no more pain. For Jesus, you yourself tell us that there, the old order of things has passed away. And for every single one of you that are here today, the gift of your Savior, the Savior who loves you, who died to pay for your sins, that gift through his blood and by his death on the cross is that your sins are truly forgiven. And so you have that hope that comes through a new life and in a new world. Amen.